Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. One of the reasons I started this podcast was to offer a way to connect parents of special needs kids to experts in various topics, much like what happens in a support group. Well, now I'd like to introduce you to another podcast for parents of special needs kids, the Inclusive Education Project. This podcast was started by Amanda Sologi and Vicki Brett, two special education lawyers in Garden Grove, California. They're using their podcast as part of a nonprofit organization, also called the Inclusive Education Project, to help provide free legal services to parents who need help with special education services in Southern California. Welcome, you both. Um, let's introduce uh, Amanda. I am Amanda Sologi. Okay, and Vicki? And I am Vicki Brett, and we are from the Inclusive Education Project. All right, great, great. Well, thanks for being on uh, Special Parents Confidential. I want to start with both of your backgrounds, if you could, and you can start in any order you want. How did you get started in special education law? So this is Amanda. So I... Um, Never thought I would actually go to law school. So I kind of found myself there through the education realm. I um, worked with kids a lot growing up, um, both in extracurricular and academic settings. And when I went to college, I thought I might go into teaching. Uh, my aunt's a special education teacher. And um, I got the, the the benefit of being able to work at a full inclusion elementary school um, when I was in college. I was a child development major. And the school I worked at was like one of those one in a million schools where uh, it's full inclusion, um, 20% of the population with kids with special needs, fully integrated into the general education setting, one special ed, one gen ed teacher for every class, aids as needed. And it was one of those inclusion settings that really worked because everything worked the way it was supposed to. And it was amazing to see. And it wasn't, it was a charter school, so it was a public school, it wasn't like some private school that had all this extra money. Um, so. I fell in love with the kids that I worked with. I worked with a boy who had Down syndrome and just fell in love with him. But very quickly, I realized how difficult the system is for teachers, um, how much red tape there is and and how much of a struggle they go through with being able to support the kids that they desperately want to. Um, and so I kind of figured I needed to do something more. I needed to do something different. I thought I would get frustrated in that system. And I found out from a parent um, who had gone through due process that it it was an area of law. And I thought, you know what, that I've always been told that I was great at arguing that I should be an attorney. So it kind of, it kind of just fit. And then I know I'm one of those lucky people that went to law school to pursue a certain area and fell into it and, and still love it. And this is Vicki. Um, so I actually had a, a different route um, into special education law. I went to law school thinking I'd be an environmental law attorney, had a fellowship with Orange County Coast Keeper for a year. Um, and it wasn't until I actually met Amanda. I was, I was going to my third year. She was going in her second year. And we had both studied abroad in Spain. And we were trying to figure out I needed two extra units. And she was like, I'm taking this clinic at, at Whittier Law School where we go. It's a special education clinic. We we can be in the same class, like, you know, do this class. And I'm like, okay, sure. Um, so I actually really fell into special education law. I actually ended up not being in her class because there were two separate classes. There was one for Los Angeles and one for Orange County residents. And I got pulled from the LA one to go to the Orange County one because I speak Spanish and they didn't have any of the um, students who were advocating that could speak Spanish. So, I mean, we ended up not ever, ever having that class together, but, um, 
I had known a little bit about special education, you know, individualized education programs, IEPs, because of my cousin, um, Ken, who um, is on the spectrum. And so it was really interesting to have that kind of familial background and then kind of falling into it into law school and then, you know, coming together with Amanda afterwards uh, to to pursue a, a law firm based on special education law. That's fantastic. That's great. And I know, Amanda, that school you talked about there, I think every par- parent who's listening to this right now says, where is that and how do I get my kid in there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's I get that all the time. So it's um, called Chime Charter. It's in Woodland Hills um, in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California. Um Unfortunately, the wait list for this school is, I mean, I I have one client that's in the area that told me that she um, offered to like work at the school part time for free just to try to get her daughter into the school because it's it's, it's a lottery system like a lot of charters. So, I mean, and and the the great thing is, is they have been um, consulting with a few other people who are creating charter schools in Orange County. And so one, just this, this school year, the 18, 19 school year, they just opened one, I believe in, in orange, um, in orange County. So the great thing about that is, is that they're very open to collaborating with other schools. So the hope is that more schools, you know, there's, there's always a misperception about charter schools because there are so many great charter schools and there are so many bad charter schools out there. Mm. Um, but the one thing that I saw with it is the ability to be able to create an inclusive environment for all that benefits all children did not cost any more money. I mean, it was a charter school. They got the same amount of money as the neighboring elementary school, but just the philosophies that they used and just the mentality. Um, and I think one of the biggest takeaways I had was that looking at every child with the possibilities, right? Giving them the equal opportunity, um, looking at their strengths rather than their weaknesses. And that's something that we really strive to do in our practices, but we don't often see that coming from uh, AEP teams, unfortunately, and, and school administrations. Right, right. Well, that's that's amazing. And I know you brought up the budgeting issue, and I do want to get to that uh, in a little bit, too. And we'll talk about that more in depth here. But that, I think that's just amazing that school exists and is able to do that. Yeah. So anyway, um, well, let's go on then. Uh, what was it that made you both decide to partner up and start the Inclusive Education Project podcast? So when I actually graduated from law school, I was a year ahead of Amanda. So I actually um, was a baby attorney at a boutique law firm that did special education law and family law, and then they were getting into personal injury. And so after um, Amanda graduated, she actually found a job at a special education only law firm. And we just kept finding ourselves meeting up for drinks after work and just talking about work (laughs) and how differently our firms did things. So we had always had in our mind, you know, 10 years down the line that we would be um, opening up our, our own law firm. So when we actually decided to take the plunge, we very naturally gravitated towards the nonprofit. So the nonprofit, the Inclusive Education Project, was to provide free legal services to families. Our law firm would would be the breadwinner um, for those families that that could afford, you know, advocacy. Um, And then about a year ago, year and a half ago, 
Amanda and I, we just, we talk all the time anyway. We thought, why don't we just record ourselves? I mean, it was just a really, you know, small idea. Um, but we thought, you know what, this, this would be a good opportunity. You know, it'll probably be, you know, 20 minutes of us just talking. And then, you know, we kind of started getting into it and thinking of different topics and then it kind of, you know, expanded to, to 30 minutes, 40 minutes. So, so with the podcast, um, you know, we have a Facebook group and that's really grown in the last couple months. And we were just getting a lot of great feedback from parents. Um, they were like, there's nothing, you know, um, um, online that really, or that is streaming that is quite like you guys being attorneys and talking about things in a very, you know, Amanda and I do not have children with special needs and we're a unique kind of breed of special education attorney. Most attorneys have their careers, you know, they're, they're 15 year attorney, you know, doing business litigation, and then they have a child with special needs and they get thrown into this whole realm and then they leave their corporate jobs and then they start their own solo firm. Um, mm. Amanda and I starting out just as two attorneys, we were already, you know, a bigger law firm, if you will, um, that did special education. And, um, I think with the nonprofit, a lot of times people, um, We'll see the nonprofit first. So, you know, a lot of people don't like attorneys. Um, so once they find out, you know, we do free presentations for the community and we have this podcast, they see us as, as experts, if you will. And it was just a great opportunity for us. And like I said, we like to talk. So, yeah, natural. I, I mean, when we. Um, when we went out on our own, we really realized that we wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, you know, in, in the state of California, we use this stat a lot. There are seven million, over 7 million students in the state of California. Uh, about 10% of them have IEPs, another 10% should have IEPs. So when you look at the grand scheme of things with the need, we could be helping a child, you know, one at a time and never be out of a job, right? And that for us, like for other attorneys would think, well, there's always a free flowing of, of clients and potential clients and, you know, we'll always be in, in, in the green and that's great. But for us, that wasn't why we went into this field. That wasn't, isn't why we kind of wanted to go on on our own. We really wanted to help solve the problem um, because helping one kid at a time is great for that kid, but it's not great for the system as a whole. You know, these these cases, majority of the time, end up in a settlement agreement. So everything's confidential. No one, no one can find out about it. The press can't find out about it. The public as a whole, you know, we we talk to community organizations all the time and try to get them to be aware of the issues. But for the most part, I mean, education in general is not a big politicized issue. So of course, special education is not. Um, but it's something that we really want to become as part of the forefront, become a big topic issue that that people really care about and that they know that there's an issue, right? I think a lot of people think the school system is is flawed because there's not enough money. And, and we try to say, well, that's actually not the issue. There's a lot of other issues that go on. And so our, our biggest goal, if, if you know, we had one goal in our careers would be to get more people just aware and kind of change the perception, Um not just of the issues that surround this population, but also the perception about disability in general. You know, we we love these kids and we see so much potential in these kids and see so much 
um, in them that they deserve equal treatment. They deserve equal rights. You know, we consider this area of law to not be just special education, but civil rights and human rights. And we want people to, to know about that. We want parents to know about their rights. We want, you know, community members to know what they can do to help because it's never going to change until more people know about it. Right, right. And I think one of the biggest challenges, of course, is that people don't think about it until they need it. Right. And that makes it uh, difficult to get that top of mind awareness. So I understand that's a great idea for the podcast, too. I think that's going to definitely help. Um, Now, what are some of the biggest challenges that you deal with in California for legal considerations with people living with disabilities? Well, you know, we could probably have an entire series of episodes on this. Um, You know, one thing that we're really seeing a lot of lately, and and we've talked about it on several episodes of our podcast, is really an issue with mental health. Um, Not just mental health of children who already are diagnosed with a disability, but the mental health epidemic as a whole. We're really seeing it as being something that is being ignored um, really badly, where we have students who on one hand are being ignored, there's cries for help, and unfortunately it ends in attempted suicide, and sometimes they're successful. And these are teenagers, elementary school students even. There's, I think I think one of the biggest challenges is the stigma just around disabilities, right? I mean, even just the the name, right? You you are able or you're not abled, right? So that is one of the biggest things I think also that our podcast tries to get out there. Um, we had a parent come up to us when we were at um, doing a, a panel last weekend um, or a couple weekends ago for the dyslexia um, fair that was going on, and she had said that you know you guys just talk about it, it, you know, freely, you know, the, the different types of disabilities that, you know, or unique needs that children have, um, how that can affect them in adulthood. And, you know, my friends that don't have a, a child with special needs can listen. And I think that, you know, we're doing all our small part in trying to, we always start say, you know, we always say this, change the conversation. And I think it seems really small, but that is one of the big, bigger challenges because the laws are, are, are well written. They are on the student side. It's just the interpretation and the enforcement of it that is um, lacking in California. Yeah. And and so, you know, that that really tends to be something that we see a lot of schools not taking notice um, of, of enough things. So there is lots of kids slipping through the and, you know, just like Vicki said, we we go as much as we can into strategies and things and real issues that not just hit the population that are generally our clients, but would hit any population, right? Because some of the many of the issues that our kids with special needs face are similar issues that all children face. You know, when we deal with mental health and bullying and peer relationships, it's just on a different scale. And so I think that we sometimes have episodes about things that we have uh, friends that listen that that have kids that don't have special needs that they they great benefit from it. But you know, I, I think that that's a, a big thing is that that perception um, that we see, which leads to under identification of students. Exactly, exactly. And another thing too about uh, mental health, of course, is that it's not just the kids who have it. Also, sometimes the parents just from the stress yes. of trying to get the right help for their kids, and uh, it does. You know, they don't exactly make it easy for uh, medical diagnosis of this sort of thing in many states either when it comes to trying to figure out what's going on. Correct. 
Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get on then with uh, budget. You know, with disability rights, special education laws vary a lot from state to state. Always seems that there's one major issue, though, and that is the lack of funding that the uh, school districts claim. Uh, they just don't have the funds. However, as you, as Amanda pointed out with that first school you were talking about, they have the same budget that anyone else does, and yet they can make it work. So clearly it's funding isn't really it. Is is it a matter of perception or how do you work with the clients in dealing with these challenges? I definitely think it's a matter of perception. I think it's long been drawn out that schools are failing because they don't have money. And people are able to perpetuate that stereotype because teachers aren't getting paid enough. So people think, well, a lot of teachers are not getting paid their worth. So therefore there must not be the money. But You know, and especially in California, we deal with this a lot. These school districts have plenty of money. It's not a lack of money. It's a lack of oversight on how they distribute that money. So in California, the California Department of Education has essentially left it up to the states to determine how their budgets get spent. I mean, of course, there's guidelines and whatnot, but there's not as much oversight as there should be. And I'm sure other states deal with this, too, where you have administrators high up in the district who are allowed to allocate their money however they want. And majority of the times, how they want it is in their own pockets or the school board's pockets. Um, so, you know, and and anyone listening can go, you know, it's public information because these are public funds. You can see how much teachers are paid. You can see how much administrators are paid, how much even the janitor is paid, right? And so if you look at the disparity between the superintendent, the administrators, that these administrators are not working a day in these schools and even principals. I mean, just the amount of money that they're able to allocate. We we always tell this story that, you know, we've seen transcripts from school board meetings where the school board um, at the end of the fiscal year will will tell, you know, everyone in the audience, which is usually just general education parents will say, hey, you know, we saved, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on special education this year. We did such a great job where should we spend this money? And the money gets reallocated back to the general pool. It doesn't go back to the federal government, even though it's allocated for special education. They get to use it. And they use it for a new football field, a jumbotron, a, you know, a higher salaries for administrators. So we see a big issue that a lot of people don't know this. Um, and that's the problem because they think, well, there's no way we can fix it. Or, or the perception is the problem with our education system is too big. So we're not even going to tackle it. it we, we couldn't possibly fix it all. So the idea of, well, if you can't do everything, we're not going to do anything. Now, for some of those smaller school districts, you know, we, we, we do come across or even um, rural um, places, they just don't have the expertise, right? In the sense of, you know, they may need physical therapy for a child. And, you know, if you don't have that on your within your district, then, you know, the, the law does allocate it that if the child needs that service, then maybe a non-public agency, which is probably going to be a bit more expensive would have to come in. That's what we see um, out in um, a couple districts out our way that are two hours from us in, into the desert. Um, so, I mean, yes, of course, there's this, you know, lack of funding excuse. Um, and the way that, you know, we help clients deal with that is to see what it is the child's needs are and, you know, try to get the district to, you know, see the light. And if they need to hire additional staff or, or do some of those things or actually use that funding for that. And then quite frankly, if they don't and we have a case, 
we have to file. Now, with that said, the federal law indicates that an, uh, a parent um, has a right to get um, their attorney's fees rewarded to them should the student win in a filing. So now you have to think a district is getting sued. They have the potential of paying for the parent's attorney. And then, of course, they have their attorney on retainer that they're paying for. So at the end of the day, you know, it's it's cost efficient for them to just do the the quote unquote right thing before having to get attorneys involved, right? And so we always try to take the collaborative approach. We, we don't wanna be super adversarial, but quite frankly, sometimes we get parents that have two, three, four years worth of violations, and we're not gonna be very collaborative. We're just gonna sue the district, right? <laughs> so, I mean, that that's one of the ways, um, a couple of the different ways that we help clients deal with, with those challenges um, when lack of funding is used as, as an excuse. Right, right. Right. And of course, uh, like you say, the attorneys involved for the school district, they're on retainer. They're actually covered some in some states, like here in Michigan, they're covered by insurance policies that the districts take out. Wow. For this type of thing, too. So the school district doesn't even pay anything out of pocket because they're making payments to an insurance company to cover it. Wow. So there's there's no and there's that issue with there's no incentive to do the right thing. Um, we, we get asked so often from parents, from other people in the field. How do these districts get away with this? And I say in special education law, there's no concept like pain and suffering, right? You go into, you get in a car accident, you hire an attorney, you get your medical coverage paid for, you, your medical bills, you get, you know, your, your new car or whatnot, but then you get pain and suffering, right? For having to deal with the situation that you dealt with. In special education law, there is no concept of, of pain and suffering damages. You get what you were entitled to get in the first place. Sometimes you can get a little bit of commensurate education to make up for that time. But at the end of the day, these school districts, when they finally do get filed on, which doesn't happen as often as it needs to, only one out of probably 100 parents will actually file with a valid case, the school district only has to pay what they should have paid in the first place. So if I'm a school district and I'm looking at 100 kids in my school district that maybe I could say yes or no to with services, if I say no to all 100, one is going to get an attorney and I'm going to have to pay for that person, but I'm saving on the other 99. So of course, you know, there's no incentive for that. Not to mention the fact that it's not their own money. These administrators, it's not personal for them. It's business essentially. Yep. It's too bad. Unfortunately, a lot of the districts uh, run things that way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the system we have, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's just working through it, but making sure you have the right uh, legal representation, too, when you get to that point. Right. Of course. Yeah. Now, a lot of parents also say one of the more frustrating issues they face is dealing with the schools and obviously getting the right kinds of help for their kids and creating an IEP for a child. Um, so what are some of the legal basics involved in creating the IEP and what should uh, parents probably keep in mind when they're going through that? I think one of the biggest things, and it's kind of shooting towards the end, is you don't have to sign that IEP the, the minute that they're done with the meeting. Um, a lot of parents are very surprised to hear that because, you know, they have their meeting, they explain X, Y, and Z, and then they go, okay, here, you have to sign this. And the parent, you know, oftentimes is one going in, you know, cause that's the parent that was able to take time off of work. There's 10 different people telling them what their kid is doing or how their kid is presenting themselves in school. You may be seeing a different kiddo and then they just want you to take their word for it. Right. And and 
And oftentimes they feel a lot of pressure to sign that IEP. And, you know, the district people will say things oftentimes like, well, if you don't you don't sign this, it's, it's not going to get started. And, and that's that's true here in California. We um, often are able to rely on, for example, if they um, are going to give your child a new service and you'd like that service speech and language to get started right away. He never had it before. Then, yeah, you might want to sign the IEP if you agree with the goals and don't have any other questions that day because everything seems to be going well and you want this service to get started. However, oftentimes they are wanting to take away a service. And so if the parent does not sign consent, to that IEP that is taking away that service, we get what's called stay put initiated. Now in different states, it works differently, but in California, you have to have the parent consent to um, initiate any change in the IEP. Arizona is very different. The district doesn't necessarily need that consent to move forward. Um, and there's different laws with that. And we're, we're kind of familiar with Arizona, but I just wanted to give you kind of a contrast because I'm sure it's different in, in Michigan as well. But that's something that that, you know, you can take it home and you can have the weekend to, to review it. And then if you have any other questions, you have the right to have another IEP, get the team together and discuss. And along those lines, parents should understand that while they may not be themselves experts, they don't have to be. Anything that they feel is a suspicion of a disability should be assessed. So kind of going back to the beginning, you know, the school districts are required. They have a child find obligation, an obligation to identify, locate, and assess all students that have a suspicion of a disability. So we're not talking just about this, you know, Johnny has a diagnosis of autism, so they need to do a special education assessment. If there's anything in their academic, social, emotional, vocational skills that is a deficit, there should be, and, and, and we always tell parents, trust your gut. If you feel like something is going on with your kid, ask for a special education assessment and don't let them try to convince you to do a student success team meeting or a 504 plan, because at the end of the day, if you go through an IEP assessment and it turns out you're not eligible and you truly aren't eligible, then you can backtrack down to a 504. But the majority of the times the child is eligible for an IEP. But what happens a lot of times is the school districts wait until the parents say something. And many times parents will go grade by grade and the, the student is getting okay grades, right? Like B's and C's, maybe a couple of D's, um, or, you know, their marks are there in the scale from one to four in elementary school. And, you know, they're getting some twos and threes, but they're thinking, you know what? Then they're being told, oh, your child is not taking enough initiative or your child is not working hard enough. And so the parents aren't experts, right? So they think, well, maybe my kid is just not good at academics. Um, but we always say there's no such thing as a lazy second grader, right? The majority of elementary school students, they want to please. They want to learn. They're eager to learn. So if something doesn't seem right, if they're not performing where you think that they should, then ask for an assessment. The school districts don't need to wait for you to ask for an assessment. They should be doing it on their own. But at the very least, you go and ask for it. So the minute the parents get that request for the assessment, the school district needs to assess. And then that starts the process of figuring out, you know, what the areas of need are to figure out annual goals and then related services and um, and going from there. But one thing we see quite often is maybe a student will start getting an assessment, um, but the school district only assessed in the areas that the parents suggested 
the parents don't know, right? The parents are not, you know, experts. So I will get students who are in like the fifth grade who the, and this child's had an IEP for years, but maybe the IEP was based on a, a speech delay or, you know, some, some reading challenges or whatnot. Um, and we find out that there really are fine motor or sensory processing issues, but the school district never did an occupational therapy assessment to even see. And the parents are, you know, saying, I've been bringing this up for a while, but the school never assessed. So it's important that the assessment, the initial assessment, covers all areas of expected disability, and that every other assessment thereon after does every area of suspected disability as well, because you're not going to be able to get a service until we have an assessment that shows that there's a deficit. Right. And of course, in many cases, there is more than just one issue in a lot of these kids. And so they need to pay attention to that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned 504s, and this might be a good point for me to uh, bring this up, because I hear from a lot of people uh, that 504s can sometimes be a better choice than an IEP because there's supposed to be more flexibility, but you're saying you prefer IEPs. What is the real uh, difference between the two and what do you guys recommend? So typically a 504 plan is generally going to give you accommodations. Um, it's not going to give you any type of um, modified curriculum or modifications to support. And it's typically not really supposed to give any related services. So counseling, speech therapy, occupational therapy, specialized academic instruction, anything that would be considered special education does not belong within an IEP. I mean, a 504 plan, it would belong in an IEP. So if the child's needs are more minimal, um, if they're more about physical access, um, so, you know, making sure there's alternative seating, making sure there's a wheelchair ramp, or um, if there's a health plan because there's a severe allergy um, they need to take medication at school. Those are the typical times, um, you know, we would look to a 504 plan. Now, a 504 plan um, is going to give you certain protections, but the protections under an IEP are much more broad because under a 504, the protections we're mainly looking at. Now, while we do have the concept of a free appropriate public education under 504, the standard is much lower than it is under an IEP. So, the expectation of what the school district is required to do in terms of making sure the student makes appropriate progress is very different under the two. So under an IEP, not only are you going to get different and more related services and actual special education, you're also going to get more protections. So if something goes wrong along down the line, your ability to challenge what the school district has or hasn't done is much more broad if you have an IEP than if you have a 504 plan. And I think the the timelines that are set out by the federal law um, for IEPs are a lot different. It's kind of a, I don't want to say fly by the seat of your pants with a 504, but for instance, um, here, um, the California has um, kind of... Uh, tailored uh, the parameters of what the federal law says in terms of like, if a parent asks for an IEP, then they have, uh, the district has 30 days to coordinate that IEP meeting. So you have these like real um, timelines that you can work with under an IEP. And, you know, some, some kiddos may not need an IEP and a 504 um, works for them. Um, sometimes, you know, the, the level of um, ADHD that the child has could, could be um, accommodated appropriately 
technically under a 504, but like the classic example of like a 504 at, at its at, at its basic is that you know my child is in a wheelchair and you don't have a wheelchair um, ramp, right? That's that equal kind of access, if you will. My child can't get to school because you don't have a wheelchair ramp, and so yes, that can be. Um, kind of tailor to different needs that the child has. Um, and, and it's kind of just a document that is documenting this where the five, uh, where an IEP is kind of like a, a living kind of document, right? It changes from year to year, not to say that a 504 couldn't, but like if something isn't working in the IEP, you could get that changed right away. You can get assessments to figure out if there's any new areas of suspected disability. You can get a service to remediate that child. Whereas a 504, it's like, yes, they could technically offer counseling, but it's the type of counseling that every child is entitled to, and it's not necessarily specialized for your child. And, and you know, we talk about accountability a lot, um, and with an IEP, you're going to have a, a little bit more accountability. So, you know, it, like Vicki said, it has to be renewed every year, but part of that is you're tracking progress on goals. With a 504 plan, there's no progress tracking because there's no goals. Um, so when a parent is looking at, is this working? It's very difficult to figure out if something's working. Now, if you're dealing with a situation that's purely about access, if the child is physically able to be in school and is able to complete their work, they have access, you know it's working. But when we're dealing with any kind of learning differences, learning challenges, with a, a student not being able to, to have positive peer interactions, we can't track that by just being able to see that they're there, right? Um, it's a classic example. We have... Um, school districts that will say, you know, oh, um, Johnny has friends. And the parents will say, no, I don't see them having friends. And they say, well, we see Johnny with two other boys at recess. But what they didn't see is that if they were near enough and they were taking data and checking the progress, they would see that Johnny probably went up to these kids and either one asked to be part of the, the group and they said no, or Johnny was talking about Legos and they're in sixth grade and it wasn't age appropriate. So the peers didn't want to interact. Right. So there's there's not that component of accountability as much with the 504 plan. Well, that's cool. That's good to know that. Uh, <clears throat> I think that helps clear up a lot uh, as far as uh, what I've been hearing from some parents <laughs> as far as that goes. Uh, you also mentioned equal access and education. Let's let's touch on that a little bit. What exactly does that mean and how does that uh, get worked out? Because a, a lot of districts do have a lot of leeway when it comes to determining what kind of uh, support involves. But equal access is more to do with physical access? No. So, so equal access is going to deal with all kinds of access. So we all know Brown v. Board of Education determined that separate is not equal, right? And we have under all of the federal laws that deal with education, the Americans with Disabilities Act, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, the Individuals with Disability Education Act, they all have this concept of access. So when we talk about access, yes, there is the component dealing with physical access. So is there, like we've said a couple times, the if there's the wheelchair ramp, um, is the student have um, the stalls big enough to go in if they, you know, have that wheelchair? Um, do they have, you know, the right equipment to be able to participate in sporting events, that sort of thing? But 
most of the times when we're dealing with access, we're also dealing with developmental access. We're dealing with behavioral access. So if the child is not able to access their curriculum, maybe they are functioning, they're reading at a second grade reading level in the sixth grade, but they're being provided work at a sixth grade reading level, they cannot read that. So then they can't, they can't learn the content of the curriculum. They cannot access that curriculum. Maybe they're having behaviors that are being them pulled out of class because they're having to go on breaks quite often or the behaviors are causing them to be suspended from school. They're being expelled from school. They're dealing with having to be pulled from the general education environment to a special education class. Maybe they're being isolated. These are all ways in which they're not accessing the curriculum, right? The general education curriculum or any curriculum for that matter, because they're not able to be in class for one reason or another. We deal with kids who have severe anxiety, depression and withdrawal. A lot of times they're unable to get out of bed so they're not able to come to school. Um, that's a, a, an issue with access, right? Because if they're not in school, they're not learning. They don't even have the opportunity to learn. So every aspect of learning and school, if the child is not able to make gains, then they're not accessing their curriculum. And so that's a concept that a lot of people um, don't don't see as clearly. And, and we, we try to drive home that it's not just about making appropriate progress. It's also about having equal opportunities to access that curriculum. So being able to physically be in the class, but also access the material. So, um, you know, I have a, a client who has low vision and she has trouble accessing because she cannot see the curriculum. So she needs a, a bunch of assistive devices to help her. But there's also the impact um, of her literacy of not being able to see and missing curriculum content. So she's not accessing the curriculum physically, but also developmentally. That's probably one of the biggest issues, too, you know, when it comes to that is being able to get involved. We have a friend uh, who has a son who's got some vision problems. But the problem is he's really tall and the teachers don't want him up front because they think he's blocking the view for other kids. But he has a harder time seeing what's going on due to that right wow geez that's a problem yeah yeah so they're they're working on getting that through and they're they're putting through their iep and a few other accommodations there but it's a, it's a difficult challenge yeah yeah definitely so um back to excuses from school districts uh finances and other uh problems how important is it for parents to understand that they need to pay attention to what states and local governments are doing with special education funding I think it's really important, um, but not just parents. I think it's really important for everybody to understand. Um, we talk about education in our world. We talk about education being one of the most important things that we should be worried about. And the majority of people don't think of it that way. If you think about um, federal elections or local elections, you rarely hear a politician talking about their education agenda, right? It's very rare to do that. And we see that as a very big problem because education is how we're growing the next generation who's eventually going to be taking care of us all, running this country, um, being our doctors, being our lawyers, right? And so if we're not educating children appropriately, we can't expect them to be the next generation to move us forward as a society and as a community. And so it, it, it's, it's so important to see what's happening with our education system, um, even if you don't have kids, because it's going to impact your lives some way or another, right? And so 
the way that, you know, even like a school board, um, if you get involved in your local school board to see where they're putting their money, I mean, it's all public record. It's all public information. You can see where their budgets lie. And if you don't like what they're doing, vote them out. Vote someone new and or run for office yourself. I mean, that's something that we're we're seeing as really needing to change that that perception of what are important issues. Um, and, and we'd say that there is something that you can do about it, right? I think a lot of parents think, well, you know, the budget, the money, there's nothing we can do. The federal government determines where the money is. But, but there are a lot of things you can do at a local level to figure out where is this money going and how can we redirect it back into the right parts of our schools and direct it back to our kids. Um, now, when a special needs student graduates from high school and they start considering college or technical schools, the emphasis on advocacy sometimes changes from parents to the student. And in a lot of cases, colleges and universities will flat out deny any intervention from parents and insist that the student has to advocate for themselves. What does graduating for a special needs student mean and how can the parents help prepare the kids for those kind of situations? So when we have a high school student, uh, maybe on the spectrum, and he's gotten all his diploma credits and and he has the cognitive ability to be able to graduate with his diploma and and go to a university. Oftentimes what we um, let parents know is that they can still continue to be an advocate, but you're having a conversation with that child and you're saying, look, is it okay if mom and dad, for instance, get a power of attorney, right? You're 18 years old. Do you want us to help you in making decisions for your education? If you want us to continue doing that, you know, and the and the child understands that this is this is what we did with my cousin Ken. He completely wanted my aunt to still help him out with financial decisions and with um, his educational decisions. And a power of attorney was was able to be entered into. Now. We oftentimes um, say that that's for more of our quote unquote higher functioning kiddos that that understand I am signing this and this means that mom and dad, you know, have the power to make decisions on my behalf. The downside is if one day he wakes up and he doesn't want mom and dad to have any say in his education, he can tear up that power of attorney. Right. Um, When we have those kiddos that maybe um, a university isn't in their sights, but maybe the um, a junior college or a community college, um, we, we oftentimes, you know, if the power, if you need a little bit more, if you need that limited conservatorship in different states, it's called um, guardianship here in California. Um, it's a conservatorship and it falls under limited conservatorship. And all that means is that the adult before the age of 18 had a disability um, um, that that affects um, them in one of several different ways, right? And and sometimes that's cognitive. So sometimes I have quote unquote higher functioning aut- autism um, kiddos that are becoming adults, but they get taken advantage of, right? I always say, um, you know, maybe there's a charlatan out there that's getting him to sign up for a credit card. He doesn't understand the concept as a as a person on the spectrum that. If I sign up for this credit card, it's a 25% interest and I'm just, you know, I'm going to just buy video games and then I'm going to have to pay that back. Right. And so the limited conservatorship gives limited powers for the parents. And one of those is the power to contract, um, the power to um, record. So that includes medical, educational power to um, determine residency. So, so it's limited to seven powers. So sometimes, you know, you have to go down that avenue of having the court get involved um, so that you are still kind of 
that parenthood is extended, right? Um, the child can't wake up one day and tear up the limited conservatorship because it was a determination made by a judge that they will need to have um, an adult um, make those decisions for them. So depending on the type of future you see for your child and the limited, I mean, you could, you could as a parent terminate it, you know, that's why it's limited in its nature in the sense that we're not giving you complete control like a general conservatorship where we see where, you know, husband and wife, husband has dementia, wife has to have the general conservatorship to make all decisions and things like that. We call it limited here in California because we still encourage the parent to encourage the child to reach that adulthood and, and understand certain things. That might happen when he's 40 um, and it may never happen, but those are some of the things either a power um, of attorney that the child can enter into if they understand the concept of, you know, I'm signing this and mom's going to help me with educational and financial decisions, um, just like you or I could enter into a power of attorney, right? Um, or the limited conservatorship is is a way that we kind of help um, and prep our parents for um, continuing to make those decisions at that university college, junior college level. Right. Well, uh, I'm sure some parents might ask then, um, so what's in place to guarantee, though, that... Uh the limited conservatorship will continue uh, if the child decides they don't want it anymore. How does that process work then? So because the limited conservatorship is um, determined by a judge, even if the, the adult, uh, the child um, decides one day he doesn't want it, it, it doesn't matter because it's, it's court ordered. Um, the power of attorney is the one that, you know, if you had a power of attorney for 20 years and then the child all of a sudden disagrees with you on one thing, you could use that time and obviously have to get the courts involved to get a limited conservatorship. Um, but most often, um, you know, that's just, we always have to go down the rabbit hole when we're explaining those things. But most often, um, the power of attorney, that there's very few times where that happens, but there there have been situations where we say, look, you've, you've had this for five years. You've helped make great um, uh, decisions on behalf of your adult child. You know, you can kind of turn this into a limited conservatorship. Um, and, and that's this, you know, a lot of people have different opinions on the limited conservatorships. Um, but that's the only way that that real security for that parent and, and that protection for that um, child that is now an adult exists because a, a court has determined it. It's not just the parent, you know, talking their kid into signing a, a power of attorney or whatnot. Um, a lot of different people are involved. The child for the limited conservatorship will have a public defender assigned to them. Um, here in California, we have the regional centers. They draft up a report um, saying, you know, whether or not the parent should have all seven powers or maybe only five powers. Um, so it's not it's not a light task that's entered into. I mean, the court is involved with the limited conservatorship. So that's why it gets to stay. And oftentimes we'll see parents passing it along to their um, other child who doesn't have a disability. So that's just like a modification. So it, it could continue through the court, even with a sibling, um, if the parents are getting older and, and are still worried about their uh, adult child with special needs. 
Okay, so definitely more involved and more uh, legal framework yes. put into place. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, support for special education, special needs beyond high school, of course, is also an issue that parents don't consider, as even with uh, limited conservatorship. In most states, special education support ends at high school graduation, but some states, uh, support goes longer. For example, here in Michigan, special needs support can continue until a person is age 26. Do you think that there needs to be stronger oversight from the federal government? to make a more uniform standard on these programs or uh, where, where do you uh, where do you view as uh, state control versus federal control for standards? Well, so the IDEA looks at special education support being three to 22 if the child needs it. But, you know, the way that states have determined what is considered needing support from that 18 to 22 is a little bit different. Um, but a student is supposed to be in special education until they're 22 if they didn't, if they haven't been quote unquote exited from special education. Now, what we find inconsistent across the states is what is it considered? What, what does it mean to be quote unquote exited from special education? There are a lot of states that consider Anything after high school is considered exited, um, whether you get a certificate of completion or a high school diploma in other states. So in California, we only have the two options. We have a certificate of completion or a high school diploma. The state education code details out what you, is required to earn a high school diploma. If you're not able to earn those, then you can get certificate of completion. Other states have like special education diplomas and they have like, you know, multiple options in between. But what we what we deal with in California is these school districts, they think that if a child earns a high school diploma, they can exit them from special education. And many other states are the same way. But what the law actually says, the federal law, so this is this is across the board, is that a student with special needs is entitled to support for academic social, emotional, and vocational. So just because a student may earn a high school diploma and maybe academically they quote unquote pass those classes doesn't mean that their special education needs don't still exist, um, especially relating to transition services. So when a child is transitioning from high school to the community, whether that's college, community college, trade school, or even just a job, or maybe, you know, their community in some form. Um, there's a lot of support and services that don't really get taught within the high school setting and so are necessary between that 18 to 22 time frame. Um, and so that's a big thing that a lot of parents don't know. Um, here in California, in order to earn a high school diploma, the education code states out 13 different types of classes that need to be taken. Um, but the way the code is written, those classes just need to be taken. They don't have to be on a genetic curriculum. They don't have to be passed. They don't have to get A's or B's. And so what we see oftentimes is special education classes being considered ninth grade English or algebra one. But in reality, the curriculum is so heavily modified because it's a mod, a mod, um, mild mod or mod severe type special day class that there's no way that they're hitting the same general education curriculum. But because the school wants to exit these students out, so they'll have to pay for these other four years, um, that becomes an issue. So I think a lot of it is, again, awareness that a lot of parents think, well, once they're done, once they walk graduation, um, that's it. Um, in California, we have, like Vicki had mentioned, regional center services um, that pick up 
um, right after the school district is done. So if they've exited with a high school diploma at 18, um, or if they exit with a certificate of completion at 22, then, you know, they, they pick up. So in California, then you have some supports that the state, um, provides, but you have to be eligible for regional center services, which is not all areas of disability. Um, a child with severe mental health needs wouldn't qualify for regional center services. Um, it's generally those developmental disabilities, um, and autism that, that tend to be, um, qualified for that. So there, there is, um, disparity across the states, but I, I, I think that because the federal government has given a lot of leeways in regards to education in general to the states, um, that's that's the big problem, right? Because we have these federal laws that are uniform, um, but they're not being interpreted and followed the same way. And our jurisdiction, so we're in California in the Ninth Circuit, we have pretty, um, we have better um, laws and interpretations than, say, like the Second Circuit. Um, and that's why we see sometimes cases, um, the Andrew F. decision that came out last year out of, that was the Second Circuit, right? The, with, I mean, eventually the Supreme Court. But well, well, came out of the Second the, Circuit and went to the Supreme Court um, because the interpretation of, of what the federal law meant in conjunction with what the state's doing. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's the, the big problem that everyone has to talk about with big government, little government. Um, the problem that sometimes you see that states are not equal. I mean, I think if you, I, you know, I hate, I hate saying this, but the the perception is, you know, we we have a, a weak link, and you're only as strong as your weak link, right? And and I would maintain that, you know, children with disabilities are not weak links. They they offer so much. We just need to tap into their potential. But a lot of people still look at it that way. So if the federal government is sitting here, and they're thinking, gosh, we have so many people on. SSI disability, you know, what are we going to do? It all starts with early intervention, education. So we always argue with very conservative people that why would you not want to spend this amount of money on, on my cousin Ken, for instance, from three to 22, get his socialization skills up, get, you know, his language up because he can go and work at Stater Brothers and bag your groceries, you know, but instead he's getting paid $600 a month of SSI because he has a disability and he's playing video games. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's my own blood, right? Like that's my own family that I'm saying that about. But right. I think that, you know, oftentimes, you know, people are scared of, you know, more government and things like that. But I, I think it is definitely something where oversight from the federal government, and we see that right with the, with that third branch of the, the Supreme court with Andrew F um, and coming down and saying, look what you're doing, um, Colorado is not appropriate. And this is where, you know, we're looking at the interpretation. So I think it's one of those things that if we were to come from that standpoint, then yes, federal government is important. And, you know, the states are laboratories and all of them are doing things different. You know, California has their regional centers, but New Mexico has um, a similar type of, of agency, just as I'm sure Michigan does. And, and it would be nice if, you know, we could get a group together um, to really um, analyze and, and research what is working and what is not, because that is what's going to make us stronger. Right, right. And there's, you know, like you say, with all the people saying, you know, we just got to cut the budget to everything. Uh, no one's really paying attention to what's being cut right. is part of the problem. You have this slash and burn mm -hmm. attitude that uh, taxes are just terrible. Get rid of them right. all. Right, right, you know. right. 
Right. And it goes with everything. But of course, that's that's a subject for an entire other podcast. (laughs) And uh, I don't even want to get into that. Um, Let's take a moment to talk about your nonprofit, the Exclusive Education Project, and how you're working to improve special education and disability rights in Southern California. It's you're leveling the playing field is how you say that. How does that come together? Yeah, so so we try, definitely. Um, so the Inclusive Education Project, or IEP for short, uh, we tried to get creative with that, um, is a legal non legal advocacy nonprofit. So we do a number of things. Um, one thing we try to do is through our, our education realm, which is where the podcast is under, is trying to educate and empower um, parents of kids with special needs, of people in the community, to see all kids as equal and 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 really be inclusive of all kids and do what we can to kind of change that perception and and change the conversation um, about these issues. But then the other side um, is our pro bono legal aid. So while Vicky had mentioned that we have our our private law firm, Sologi and Brett. Um, we really wanted to be able to help the community as a whole and, and help as many families as, as we can. So a, a lot of families with kids with special needs are dealing with a lot already financially, no matter what their income is, um, having to go to extra therapies, transportation to other therapies and, and whatnot. And so they can't afford um, to pay $350, $400 an hour to an attorney to help them, especially considering that an issue that might arise when they're in second grade might keep rising up and they might need an attorney every year. Um, so what we try to do is, is provide this, this pro bono legal aid. So when families are low income and they qualify under legal aid standards, we're able to provide them full pro bono um, advocacy from um, we have law student advocates that do IEP meetings to filing for due process with our attorneys. Um, And so we're really trying to make sure that every family has access to legal representation because the law does afford that. The law says that every family should have be entitled to have an attorney to fight for their rights because unfortunately, the reality of, of the situation is, is that in order for parents to really get what it is that needs to be changed in their child's education, more often than not, they need an attorney because they need to file for due process. Um, we do a lot of advocacy um, outside of due process as well, um, because we recognize that there are some school districts and there are some school teams, um, some school administrators that are willing to work with us and, and be more collaborative. And we recognize that a big um, problem that we see is communication. Um, on one hand, we have um, the school district who lives and breathes of this every day, speaks almost in code um, to the parents. And even if they're speaking English, they're talking about a lot of things that these families don't understand. And then we have the added layer. Um, a big problem that we have in Southern California is the, the, the population that doesn't speak English and how they're able to communicate um, with the school district. So we try to, to fill that, that gap and um, really help collaborate and be that, that middleman to help, help move the team forward and, and making sure there's good communication. That's great, because um, let's face it, money is the big issue there for a lot of people. And I know there's always there's always several reasons why people are hesitant to call for legal help. And, of course, expense being one of them. The other one being, well, I should be able to figure this out on my own, you know, or I don't know right. if I want people getting involved in my business. But it, it really just makes such a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we, we get a lot of families that are hesitant because they're, they fear of retaliation. 
And it's very unfortunate, but there is instances where we get involved and the school district then retaliates because they get very angry. Um, and and it is a harsh reality, but I think part of it is, is because not enough families fight. And so the school district, again, thinks that they can get away with it. And so they think, well, if we scare and intimidate families from never doing this again, then that's all the better. So if more families fought, I don't think we would see um, those challenges. And then, of course, there's always the stigma as well. You know, oh, well, I'm going to be considered the parent who got an attorney. And, you know, uh, you know why, why am I needing an attorney for my kid's education? And it's like, well, you know, unfortunately, we would love for our jobs to not exist. We'd love for there to be a day where a special education attorney is no longer needed because the schools are doing their job, you know, because that's all we're fighting for. We're just asking them to do their job. Right. And sometimes it's amazing to see if they can actually do that. But, yep, hopefully someday uh, you guys will be able to just go into uh, pure nonprofit work. But who knows? (laughs) Oh, well. Well, we're glad you still have jobs right now anyway, because I think a lot of parents need the help. Um, Where can listeners get in touch with you, find out more about your podcast and the podcast? inclusive education project and all the rest of that stuff you want them to know they can visit our website iep california.org and actually there's links to our podcast right from that website and then you know you can kind of um see uh, events that we posted in the past and, and any future events um but that's probably a, a good way and then obviously um through facebook if you just look um us up inclusive education project we actually have a page um and through that page you can um join our inclusive education project podcast group so it's a closed group. Um, so you, you request to be, um, let in. And, um, the reason why we wanted the group is we wanted to create, um, a a mini community where people could discuss, um, you know, either the episodes, their own experiences and really, you know, because Amanda say it all the time. We we say this all the time on our podcast, you know, we are special education attorneys, but we're not your special education attorneys. So we're drawing from our own experiences and what we see from day to day. And, you know, sometimes we'll forget to say not all districts are like this. Sometimes it feels like they all are the same. Um, But the group has actually been um, a great form of uh, open communication that a lot of parents, a lot of um, people from the district, um, a lot of teachers from California and outside of California have kind of been able to get um, along, thankfully, um, and discuss, you know, their experiences and tips and tricks that worked for them. Um, and and we're, we're really appreciative of that community because w- without that um, caring and understanding, um, it could go really um, sideways really quickly, but it hasn't, which is good. And then our podcast, you can find us on um, Stitcher Radio, uh, Spotify, and Google Google Play Google and Play. on your um, podcast app on your iPhones. Right. Just the, everywhere the podcasts are available. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yes, sir. Yep. That's great. Um, the one thing I would ask finally, as we uh, sort of wrap this up, what would be the one thing that you would say to a parent who is really at that point where they're just not sure where to turn? They're getting a lot of frustration. When is the time to call an attorney in and when is the time 
that uh, they can just, uh, you know, maybe wait and see what they can do. Where's that line as far as you guys are concerned? I mean, I'm going to give you the very attorney answer and say it depends. (laughs) (laughs) But but I mean, I would say when they're comfortable, um, because if they're not sure if they're ready for it, um, you know, it, it is a process, it, you know, going with an attorney and, and going through due process and, and dealing with that, it, it is a process. It's something that, you know, we want them to be ready for because like, you know, we as attorneys, we try to make the parents as comfortable as possible throughout the process. We try to take a lot of the, the legwork from them and we do it ourselves. We say, Hey, you leave all communication to us. So that way we're the bad guys. It's no longer you. You can go back to being, you know, the everyday mom, you know, pick coming for pickup and drop off. Um, but if the parents not ready for that, you know, it's going to be difficult. So, I mean, it really is going to depend on, but we would say sooner than later. Um, because I can't tell you how many times I get a family that comes to me in middle school and high school, and we're now four grades below grade level. And there's so much we could have done in second grade. Um, but in the statute of limitations only allows us to go back two years. I mean, there's exceptions. We can go back a little further, but by then the damage sometimes is, is a lot worse than it could have been. So I guess trust your gut. And, you know, if you feel like there's something going on and that your kid maybe needs a little bit more help. Trust your gut on that. And, and, and even if you, you know, seek advice and, you know, maybe join our, our Facebook group and talk to other parents and they all might say, hey, yeah, I dealt with the same thing and here's what I got and it might help. I mean, the parents need to understand that they're not alone. More often than not, they think that they're all by themselves in the situation that they are. And unfortunately, we often hear parents that say, you know, this is probably you probably haven't heard this one before. And we often have to say, I. I I feel for you, but you're not alone. You're not the only person who has that same issue. So as much as parents can kind of get with each other and be a support systems for each other and collaborate with each other, I think that that really helps as well. Yeah, it's like, you know, no, you're not alone. In fact, there's a whole textbook written about this. Uh, (laughs) That kind of thing. Sure. Okay, and then we should probably do the standard legal disclaimer, of course, that you two are licensed in the state of California, Orange County, and not everything you say is applicable in every state state or other place. Correct. (laughs) Yes. Always consult with a local attorney. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, being a part of uh, Special Parents Confidential. Thank you so much for having us. My thanks again to Amanda Sologi and Vicki Brett of the Inclusive Education Project. You can find links to their website and Facebook group on the page for this episode at specialparentsconfidential.com. Once again, a reminder that if you like this episode or any episode of Special Parents Confidential, please help out and share our podcast on all of your favorite social media sites. You can use the social media buttons on our website, which make the whole process easy. We're also now available on Spotify. Check out the posting on our website that contains a link for you to subscribe to us for free right there. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.